0: Now, we continue our series in Matthew's Gospel, and there will be, from time to time, breaks in the preaching of Matthew's Gospel. It is a very, very long book, and we've been in it quite some time. But we come now to chapter 9, verse 35, through chapter 10. We're going to read the entire section. I thought it was necessary for us to paint the broad picture, to see the broad sweep, and how these things hang together. And then I plan to go back to a couple of the texts in chapter 10 and focus upon them independently over the next couple of weeks. Chapter 9, beginning with verse 35. Let us pray before reading. Almighty God and Father, we know, as we saw in our text last week, That only the Holy Spirit can open a heart and save a sinner, and only the Holy Spirit can take this word divinely inspired, inerrant, in the whole and in the part, and apply it to us. Indeed, one of the great evidences of the total depravity of man is that we can have this word and not love it, have this word and not read it, turn a deaf ear to the good news of Jesus Christ found within its pages. But, Heavenly Father, we also know that the Holy Spirit saves a people for Himself, that He calls to the Lord Jesus Christ, and that the blood of Jesus is applied to the heart, and that the Father draws to Himself those whom He has given to the Son, so that He might purchase them on that cross. Will you, therefore, work in the hearts of those who have been drawn, who are saved by the precious blood of the Lamb, who know you, Father, through faith in Christ, And will you draw others today that they also may know the Lord Jesus? Father, we have much joy in this text. It is also a very solemn text. It is a very serious text, as was the psalm that we sang together. There are major notes in the Christian life. There are minor notes in the Christian life. But all comes under the sovereign hand of our Father in heaven. Hear us as we pray, asking the blessing of the sovereign God, you, O Lord, our Father, upon the preaching of the word, for it pleased God through the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. In Jesus' name, amen. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 9, beginning with verse 35. This is the word of God. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them, because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, "'The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest.' And he called to him his twelve disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction.' The names of the twelve apostles were these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus; Simon, the Cananean, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent out instructing them. Go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and proclaim as you go, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons, you receive without pay and give without pay. Acquire no gold nor silver nor copper for your belts, no bag for your journey, nor two tunics or nor sandals nor staff. For the laborer deserves his food. In whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake. "...to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say. For what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death. And father, his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death." And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly, I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul... How much more will they malign those of his household? So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell." Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven." Does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward, and the one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward, And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly, I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Now here is my thesis as we come to this section of Scripture. Jesus' compassion impels us to ministry, and his special love sustains us in that ministry. Let me repeat it. Jesus' compassion impels us in ministry, and his special love sustains us in ministry. Let's begin with Jesus' compassion, as we see it there in verse 36. When he, this is chapter 9, verse 36. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them, because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. We see several things about Jesus' compassion as we begin this section together. First of all, Jesus' compassion is uniquely described. The word that is used here for compassion is a word that means bowels. Now, in the ancient world, it was recognized that when we feel things very deeply, we feel them in the stomach, and so that is the word that is used for compassion. You know that, don't you? Uh, You feel excitement? Where? In your stomach. You feel pain? You feel it in your stomach. If you feel grief, you feel it way down deep within your gut. That's what Jesus is experiencing here as he looks upon this crowd, this multitude, and he sees their deep need. He feels for them. He has deep feelings in his intestines. He has yearning for them. Wasn't it pity that brought the Son of God from heaven to the cross? Wasn't it pity, compassion, that brought him to save us from our awful sins? We have a high priest touched with feelings of our infirmities, and here we see that Jesus Christ, God's own Son, God incarnate, feels and feels deeply for those around him in need. And so Jesus' compassion is very uniquely described. But also Jesus' compassion stretches out to needy sinners. Look at verse 36 again. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. They were harassed and they were helpless, or as it could be translated, they were distressed and downcast. They were burdened with a wrong view of how one can be accepted by God. They were burdened with the Pharisaical view that they must, through their own works, be accepted by God. This is precisely the same circumstance the Christian faith faces in the world today. Every religion on the face of the globe, but that which is true, which is Christianity. Every one of them teaches that a man, a woman, a child is made acceptable by what he does. That's true of all of them without exception. It's true of Islam. You do certain things. You are obedient to the five pillars, and maybe, maybe, You will be made accepted, acceptable to their view of who God is. Oh, these people were shepherdless. Uh, We are immediately to think, of course, of passages such as the one we read in Ezekiel 34, in which the shepherds of Israel did not shepherd the flock. We are to immediately think, as Christians today, of John chapter 10, that the good shepherd of the sheep has now come to give his life in order that we might be his sheep indeed, and a part of his fold, and redeemed and saved. We are to remember that this is the great shepherd of the sheep who through the blood of the eternal covenant equips us for service. These people had no true shepherd, and Jesus yearns to be the shepherd of sheep like these. And so his compassion stretches out to needy sinners. But also, Jesus' compassion... Forms for us, constitutes for us a call to prayer. Having spoken of his compassion and his his care for these needy sinners that are without a shepherd, he says in verses 37 and 38, then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. He sees a harvest, he sees that it is a plenteous harvest. In another place he says, It is white unto harvest. And he wishes to gather them. In order that they might be gathered, he says what? Is it surprising to you what he says? He says, pray. Now that's surprising to me. Because we tend to think this way. There are the people. There is the need. Get out there and do it. There are those who need to be shepherded. Get out there and take the message. There are those around us who need a shepherd and they are without a shepherd. And so let's train men. Get them out there. Let's do all of these things. And all of these things are essential. And all of these things are important. But that's not where Jesus tells his disciples or his church to begin. You don't start there. You start on your knees. You start in prayer. You come to the one who can gift ministers of the word to be evangelists and pastors of sheep. You come to the one who can gift men and women to go into various parts of the world and to serve him in various ways. You pray because only the Lord can give those gifts to his church. Now, I'm very struck by this. And I'm struck by the connection between compassion and prayer before we even see the disciples thrust out into service in this chapter. And I ask you the question, do you pray? Is this a part of your prayer life that you come to the Lord of the harvest and you ask him... Lord, show your compassion to the needy around by giving to them those who are capable of shepherding them in their need. Do you pray? If not, will you pray? Will you begin to pray if you have not been praying that prayer? And could it be that we do not pray because we lack compassion? The compassion of Jesus for the lost, for those who are without a shepherd. Could it be that we do not pray because we don't don't care? You know, there are times in my life in which I can say so sadly, my heart has been so incredibly cold. What Christian cannot say that. But you know, there are other times in my life in which I can say, and this more consistently than not by the grace of God, that there has been deep compassion in my heart for those around me in need and especially for the lost. I remember when Christ saved me when I was 13 years old. There I was desperate, hopeless, helpless, The law came to me and condemned me. Christ came to me and redeemed and saved me. And the first thing I did that very night was to gather people together, open a Bible, and begin to teach them. I didn't know anything about the Bible. But I cared that they heard the message that had now come to me, 14, 15 years old. I remember at Central City Park in Macon, Georgia, which is my hometown, every Sunday afternoon after church, I would go down there, every time I could at least, every time my parents would let me, there the rock bands you see would gather. And they would be playing, and hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds of young people would gather. And the city, of course, wanted to close them down and eventually did because that was the gathering point for marijuana smoking and for all sorts of things that happened with with uh, young people that weren't chaperoned. But God enabled me. It's all to His grace, all to His glory. God enabled me to see these people as As young people in need, and I took my New Testament, again, I didn't know much, but I was learning, and I was growing, and I took my New Testament down there every Sunday. I opened it up in the midst of those crowds of young people smoking their marijuana, and I would read the Bible to them and talk with them about about the gospel of Jesus Christ and share with them in need. That was compassion that didn't come from me. God showed me compassion. I desire to show compassion. Is that true in your life as well? Do you have that compassion for the loss that comes from the Lord Jesus Christ? Richard Nill was a 19th century minister who preached the gospel in England and was known for distributing tracts, thousands upon thousands of tracts that were mightily used by God. I believe in tract distribution. Mightily used by God in England. On one occasion, he took to a group of soldiers one of his tracts that explained the gospel, and one of them tore it up into little pieces right in front of his eyes. On another occasion, that same soldier, as he saw Richard Nill spreading his tracks, gathered other soldiers around him and encircled him and then said, now let's curse and blaspheme. And they began to curse and blaspheme because they knew that that holy man of God, they knew he would become so angry. But he didn't become angry. Do you know what he did? Richard Nill wept. You see? He wept because his heart was so grieved that these men did not receive their only hope in life and in death. And he wept because he knew they were about to go into a Christless eternity. He wept because he was filled with compassion. And that soldier who had caused all the trouble for Richard Nill, God the Holy Spirit took that to his heart and converted him. You see, God uses the compassion of Jesus shown through his people to convert the lost. That's why we pray. We pray that God will raise up men to preach the gospel. We also pray that God will move our own hearts to be like the Savior's heart and to care as He cares. By the way, is there someone here this morning and you're in need of compassion? You're lost, you're undone, you don't know Christ? You've heard this morning about this thrice holy God of whom we sung in our opening hymn. You don't know Him, but you know indeed if there is a holy God that I'm not holy and I'm condemned. I need compassion. I need saving. My friend, my unfitness makes me the fit object of Jesus' compassion. Go to him and say that. I am totally unfit, and my unfitness is what makes me fit for compassion. Lord, show me your compassion and grace. And so we begin this passage by seeing Jesus' compassion. Second thing I want us to see as we move into the 10th chapter is the church's ministry. We have compassion. We have prayer. The church's ministry. Now, there is much in this chapter that is unique to this setting. The disciples are told to go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and not to the Samaritans and not to the Gentiles at this time. Uh, it is a, a ministry that is, that is to be accomplished before the, re- the return of Christ in judgment in 70 AD in Jerusalem. All of that is clear on the face of the passage. There's much here that doesn't apply directly to the ministry of the church today, but There is much that does apply directly to mission today, to our ministry today. And I want to focus on those things with you. The church's ministry then, first of all, the kingdom is our message. You see that in verse 7? Proclaim as you go, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, what is the kingdom of heaven? It's the equivalent of the kingdom of God. These two things are synonymous. And it means the saving reign of Christ has come. It means that Jesus has arrived and with him, eternity has broken into time and the saving reign of the Lord Jesus has now arrived. And so when we teach about the cross and the resurrection and the ascension and the return of Christ and all of these glorious truths, these truths are the message of the kingdom of God. And in Colossians chapter 1, we are taught that we are either members of one kingdom or another. For we have been translated out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, out of the kingdom of Satan into the kingdom of God's own dear Son. And you are a member of one or the other kingdom. That's the message of the kingdom. Believe and repent so that you may be members of Christ's kingdom and not the kingdom of darkness. By nature, you are a kingdom, a member of the kingdom of darkness. You are a member of Satan's kingdom. One or the other. And so the message we take out is the message of the kingdom. Second thing I want you to see about the church's ministry is that sacrifice is our call. Now, I'm only going to mention this in passing. He says in verse 9, for example, Acquire no gold, nor silver, nor copper for your belts, no bag for your journey, nor two tunics, nor sandals, nor staff for the laborer deserves his food. I know this is unique to the apostles. I understand that. But I think there's a principle here. And the principle is that we serve the Lord and we be responsible, but we not give over much concern for the provision of our material needs, and we must be willing to sacrifice and trust the Lord for that provision. That's something that I think we affluent Americans especially need to remember in ministry, don't you? It's something that is important for us to remember, sacrificial giving of ourselves, of our substance, for the spread of the kingdom of God. I only mention it in passing. But there's something else that we find here. We see the kingdom is our message, sacrifice is our call, but rejection is our expectation. Here in verses 11 through 15, we read something of that. Whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town, truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Rejection is our expectation. The disciples are told they will be rejected because they are Jesus' disciples. Rejection of the gospel by others, however, comes at the greatest cost. You know, the Jews shook off the dust of pagan lands from their clothes. They would come from one territory and back into Israel, and they would take their clothes and they would shake it off. They didn't want any of the dust from a Gentile territory remaining on their Jewish clothes. How shocking is it, then, that Jesus takes that very figure and he applies it to those who spread the gospel. If those reject the gospel, you shake the dust of that town or that house off of your clothes, and you go on and you take the gospel elsewhere. That's powerful. It's profound. You see the judgment theme? Truly, I say to you, verse 15, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for you. That says a great deal, does it not? That the gospel of Christ, the kingdom message is taken into the world, and for those who reject it, it will be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for those who reject the good news of Jesus Christ. You see how the theme of compassion and the theme of judgment are brought together in the very same passage. In compassion we take the gospel, but those who reject the gospel are judged. This, of course, is how we understand the cross. The love of God sends Christ into the world. It is in the cross of Christ that his justice is met. And the only way that we can know God is by justice having been met. But for those for whom justice has not been met, for those who have not trusted in Christ, they will not know and they will not experience relationship with God, a saving relationship with God. It will be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah for for those who reject the good news of Jesus. But there's something else in this passage. We've read that the kingdom is our message, sacrifice is our call, rejection is our expectation, but also opposition is our inevitability. Opposition is our inevitability. This is really verses 16 through 25, but I want to focus on two verses, verses 24 and 25 of chapter 10. Look at it. "'A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master.' If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? What is Jesus saying here? He's saying, I'm the master of the house, and they have called me Beelzebul. If they say that to me, then can you expect better? But what does it mean? What is he saying, Beelzebul? Well, Beelzebub means lord of flies. It means Prince Baal, that awful, ugly, Baal worship, of which we read through the Old Testament. In other words, it means God of filth. Beelzebub then becomes Beelzebul. And Beelzebul means Lord of dung. And the Pharisees were saying that Jesus can cast out demons because he is aligned With the Lord of Dung. The sinless, holy Son of God was accused of being in league with the devil. And Jesus says, If they say that about me, the master of the house, how can you expect that you will escape being treated similarly? Note this. Well, when the blood of the cross as the only way to God is proclaimed faithfully by his church, the church inevitably faces opposition. When the church of the Lord Jesus Christ faithfully upholds the inerrant word and proclaims from this book Jesus Christ and his gospel and all of the truths and all of the doctrines found therein, when we are faithful in proclaiming the gospel in the world and upholding the truth of Jesus in the world, the church will face opposition. It is inevitable. And so be faithful. Be decisive, people of God. If you trim the gospel now, you debase, you debase the generations that follow in the church. I'm extremely concerned about this because of all of the heresies and false teachings that now are entering evangelical churches. And you can see them, they're rife. Errors about the person of Christ, about who God is, errors about the atonement, very, very serious things in the church today. When opposition comes, sometimes it's not only from the outside, it is from within. And when opposition comes, God's glory first must be firmly planted in your heart. And you won't get that from filling the church with unconverted people. I'm talking about the membership roles with unconverted people who want to feel good about themselves rather than hear the truth as it is in Jesus. You won't get that by filling the church with people who want spiritual Xanax, as someone said to me recently. The answer to the drivel that is entering into the evangelical churches today. What is it? I'll tell you what it is. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, during the downgrade, that was the period in which liberalism was entering into the Baptist Union and Charles Spurgeon stood against that liberalism and he was censored by the Baptist Union for his faithfulness to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Spurgeon said in the midst of that these words, Calvinism means the placing of the eternal God at the head of all things. I look at everything through its relation to God's glory. I see God first and man down the list. We think too much of God to please this age. The only answer, people of God, to the drivel that is entering into our churches today, the only answer when opposition comes is to think too much of God to please this age. To hold him high, to lift him up, To make his glory first, to be determined that you're going to please him and honor him no matter what comes, that opposition won't matter so long as Jesus is pleased, honoring the Lord who bought you, that's the only answer to the decline that we see in the church today. Decline, you say, look, these churches I'm talking about are filled to the gills. Yes, they are, but they're not hearing the truth. Opposition is our inevitability when we proclaim the gospel faithfully, but also division is the result. That's in verses 34 and following. Look at it. Do not think that I've come to bring peace on earth. I've come to bring, I've not come to bring peace, but a sword. Or I've come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me, and who, whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Jesus says, I did not come into the world to bring peace but a sword. He's brought peace to my heart and to the hearts of those who believe the gospel, but he has not brought peace into the world. He has brought division. Your fundamental duty then as a Christian is to become possessed by the truth and to be determined that you're going to follow the truth and be obedient to the truth and love the truth and speak the truth and live out of the fullness of the truth even though you know that truth, the truth of the gospel, brings division between father and And child, and mother, and daughter. You know this. Some of you sitting here have believed in the gospel of Christ. You don't love what you once loved. You're totally changed. You're a new creature in Christ. And there are those in your family who have rejected you because you believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. Things are different now. You see the world differently. They can't get it, they can't understand it, they're blind, they're in darkness. But you now can see what once you didn't see. You now love what once you hated. Everything is different for you, and it has brought division into the home and into the family. And it will continue to cut right down through our culture as long as we are faithful to the gospel. When we do not see that kind of division, we are not being faithful. When we do not see that kind of division coming in our culture and people begin to love love the church out there in the world and the world begins to look like the church and the church begins to look like the world, it's because we are not being faithful to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because when the gospel comes, it comes like a sword that cuts and divides person from person. That's what Jesus says. This is a hard saying, but this is what Jesus teaches. Christ's gospel is a sword that separates believer from unbeliever. In this church, we attempt to follow church discipline for the sake of the glory of God and to recover the offender. But the gospel comes as a sword, and it divides. Do you see what I'm saying here? People of God, we are called to hold to the exclusivity of the gospel. The world doesn't care when we say that Jesus was a great teacher. The world doesn't care when we come and we say some things about salvation even. What the world hates is when we say there is no other way, no other person, no other means but the cross. The world hates that. When we say what Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. The world hates that. They don't hate it when we just spout a philosophy. They hate it when they hear the true gospel. God has His people that He will draw. Others, it brings separation. So we've seen Jesus' compassion. And we have also seen characteristics of ministry. The kingdom is our message, sacrifice is our call, rejection is our expectation. Opposition is our inevitability. Division is the result. Now, this is pretty difficult, isn't it? This really flies right in the face of much that is taught in evangelical churches about health and wealth and everybody being happy and no problems in life. And when you come to Jesus, everything's going to be great and fine. No, no, you come to me. That's when the opposition starts. That's when some of your problems really begin. And so where is the sustenance of the church in the midst of ministry like this? Where's the sustenance for us when Jesus says, Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Where's the sustenance? That's the third and final point. Our sustenance is this. God's providence sustains His church in ministry. And here I'm focusing upon verses 29 through 31. Just briefly because I'm going to single this out for more later. Verses 29 through 31, are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father, but even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. God's providence sustains his church in ministry. God's providence, according to this passage, extends to the minutiae. It extends to the sparrows who fall to the ground. It extends to the number of hairs on your head. Now, even those of us who may be challenged in that regard, I wouldn't want to try and count the hairs on your head. Jesus knows the hair on your head and yours and yours and yours and all of his people, every last single one of them. This isn't just metaphor. He knows them. The Lord God is omnipotent. He knows every single hair. Those that fell out in the shower this morning, he knows them all. My friend, this is for, for ordination, this is predestination, this is providence. It's taught so clearly in God's word everywhere. There is not a dust mote that flies in the sun, but what it is predestined by God. His providence controls all events, all people, all things. It extends to the minutia. He wants this to encourage you. And it demonstrates God's perfect knowledge. So that when we say, Lord, you just don't know. You don't know what I'm going through. Lord, you just can't know. When will it be over? How did this happen, Lord? You can't. Look at this persecution. Look at this opposition. Look at the ministry right now and the things we're going through. Lord, you just don't know. He does know. He ordained it. Does trouble come from God's hand? Absolutely. Absolutely. Absolutely, for his glory and for the good of his church, for the extension of his kingdom and the good of his gospel. Of course it comes from his fatherly hand. I know people who seem to think, well, all the good comes from God. Anything bad must come from some other source. Nonsense. Just read the Bible. Of course it comes from God. Of course it's in his sovereign purview. Even those things that come from the devil. The devil is God's devil. He's sovereign over it all. Even the wrath of men shall praise him. It's all in his sovereign hands. And he shows God's love to you, his people, in the midst of hardship. He shows his love through his providence. That's what he's doing. He's loving you in these things. And that's not always apparent. You say, man, I don't see the love of God in what I'm enduring. I don't see it in this persecution, opposition, or whatever you may be experiencing. I don't see it. God demonstrated his own love to us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Never doubt the love of God. You see it in the cross. Never doubt that he loves you, child of God. You see it in the atonement. You see it in his shed blood for you. If you see it there, then you can know that certainly in these lesser things, he's showing his love to you, his people. Even when you don't get it and you can't see it and it doesn't make sense to you. So persecution, opposition, Peter says, count it all joy when you enter into these things and suffer for the sake of Christ. And so calm your heart in hardship. Find there fellowship with your heavenly Father. Christian, God, your Father, has never yet sent one thing into your life that was not for your good. He has never sent one thing into your life that was not for his glory and for your good. And everything about his people is precious to him, even the hair on your head. He knows you so well. You are so precious to him. Even the hair on your head. And this delivers us from fear. See verse 31, fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. And how the martyrs have demonstrated this time and time again. Yes, they were apprehensive about being burned at the stake, but they did not fear. Why did they not fear? Because we read in verse 28, do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. And so, people of God, the providence of God, the love of God that is shown to you and his sustenance of you, no matter what he calls you to endure by way of opposition, persecution, or whatever the hardship may be in your life, this is the key to contentment. The persecution of which Jesus speaks here is no accident. He's telling them in advance, this is what you're going to experience. Persecution, opposition, hardship. It's no accident. It's in his plan for his church. Therefore, go out. Do what I've called you to do and be at peace. Because affliction matures us. And providence helps us to learn to rejoice rather than carp and complain, and to be able to sing that old hymn, Whatever My God Ordains is Right. And so to learn over time how to rejoice when hardships come because you know God, your Father, who loves you, who gave His Son for you, is in it. Well, you must agree in this chapter that we've just looked at so briefly this morning, there's much here for believers. (laughs) Much here for our ministry, isn't there? Much here that calls us to faithfulness. But let me turn just for a moment my attention to those who may be here today and you're not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. You've never trusted Christ as your Savior and your Lord and you don't know the joy of his sustenance. You don't know the joy of his love that is shown in his providential care of you. You just don't know it. You've never experienced it. You don't You don't understand it. You don't perceive it. And maybe you hear this text and you say, I surely don't want to live life that way. I don't want to be opposed and persecuted. I'll just go on the way I am. But my friend, let me tell you, you are moving towards something far worse. The believer endures much in this world. We have an ultimate hope and we're going to be completely delivered from these things. We're going to be with Christ for eternity. We're going to know the one who created us and who redeemed us forever and ever and ever. But you are headed toward a gaping judgment. And if you do not put your faith in Jesus Christ, then you will, you will go to hell. And there you will be forever and ever. And so I call upon you to look to the cross, to look to the Lord Jesus who shed his blood for sinners like us, to believe in him and to trust in him so that you may be saved from your sins. May God grant it. In Jesus' name, amen.